Hi, our listeners. Welcome back to The Writer's Show. I'm Jeff Hughes, and today I'm talking to Jimmy Fretz, whose new book, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer, a psychedelic travel memoir, takes us on a journey both geographical and philosophical, while sharing a half-century of adventures in buying, selling, and consuming psychedelic drugs. Along the way, we learn the difference between smart drugs, dumb drugs, the truth about religion, and how to make a perfect cup of tea. Let's get right into it. You're quite the polymath, writer, filmmaker, and musician. Where does this restless need to create come from? I don't know. I mean, I've always been pretty creative. I learned to to play the guitar when I was 17, and I spent 10 years touring around Europe for, you know, a few years. I used to go out every summer and do the Italian Riviera and the French Riviera and just go from town to town playing guitar. So I made a living very early uh, with music, and that was a... That was a great, great way to travel because I could make money anywhere I went and had a pretty good lifestyle doing that. Later on, I did, um, you know, put together bands and trios and duos. But for a few years, I was a professional musician for probably about six years. And then I got into filmmaking. And filmmaking was a lot of fun, but very difficult to really get ahead. I did a lot of educational promotionals, did uh, documentaries and then some docudramas made a couple of short films and went to the festivals with it, tried to fund, a, wrote two feature length screenplays and try to get one of those made. And we came pretty close, but it's a tough, tough business and it's very, very expensive. And I started writing because, um, well, my first book was uh, Rave Culture and Insider's Overview. And that was about the rave, global rave phenomenon. It was a global overview of the whole scene that was going on in the world at that time. And, um, because I got involved with uh, with rave, I uh, wanted to you know tell everybody about it. So I started writing for, from that really, and that first book did quite well. Still still selling today. <clears throat> this new one is a um, is a memoir. It's a tra- psychedelic travelogue and memoir, and it's about my many travels geographically, but also travels uh, psychologically uh, through psychedelics. <clears throat> so it's sort of a uh, a treatise on a, a realistic overview of, uh, of psychedelic drug use over my life and in the context of what's happening today with all the psychedelic research that's going on and the explosion in, in uh, various research into psychedelics is happening right now. So it's quite timely. Yeah. So I'm going to ride the wave of the new psychedelic revolution. Yeah, I've been reading it. It's um, a fantastic read. You wryly comical turn of phase. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a hell of a funny guy. <laughs> so let, let's talk about confessions of an ethical drug dealer. What's the reaction been to it so far? Well, good. Nothing but positive, really. I've had some great reviews. I was surprised because I sent it round to a few agents and whatnot, and they were they were clutzing about it. One of the um, one of the literary agents I sent it to said it was the best thing they'd read in some time, which was pretty encouraging. Although I didn't go the traditional route of publishing because um, I think you have to give too much up and uh, give too much away. And I'm happy to do it myself, you know. So I self-published my first book. I self-published this book as well. I have a a small uh, publishing company called Small Fry Press. And my wife's a very talented artist. So she does the covers and the artwork. 
and uh, you know it's not too hard to do the layup and stuff and the, and the book design and that kind of thing so in the end of the day you know <clears throat> i don't know what the public publishers i don't know what they're doing for you really unless they're a huge publisher and they can you know sell you a million copies but there's that doesn't really happen too much anymore i mean a bestseller in canada these days is five thousand copies so you know you're not going to sell a million copies no matter what publisher you get so no. I decided to go with self-publishing. I think that's the best way to go these days. Well, there is. You can, you've got full control of your own platform. Exactly, yeah. And you get all the money. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about the traditioning publishing route is that not only do they not do that much for you, but they make you jump through so many hoops. I mean, I, I tried. I sent this to a few publishers, and they sent me back these, like, you know, seven-page documents that I had to do a book proposal and a synopsis of every chapter and what my demographics were and what social media platforms they were on and on and on. I thought, really, I'm going to do all this. And what are you going to do? Right. I've already written the book. You can read it if you want, but I, I didn't want to jump through all the hoops. So I said, well, it's, yeah. it's a finished book. You can read it if you like. And if you're interested, okay, but I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to spend, you know, days working up a book proposal for a book that's already written. No, it's a bit bonkers, isn't it, when you look at it? It's a bit that, backwards, that and then they want to rewrite it, and then they want to assign an editor, and then they want you to rewrite the whole thing, and then they wanted to do the cover design and the book design, and they get their professionals to do that, and that costs a fortune. And then when you sell books, you spend uh, the, you know, the first few years just paying off your debt to the publisher. That's it. And if there's anything left over at the end of that process, you know, you're lucky. So yeah, I think the um, it's like the music business, the you know the traditional sort of you know record deal with it, and um, the traditional publisher route is is slowly crumbling, and uh, people are just doing it themselves. Well, yeah, it's a bit punk, isn't it? It's um, the, the soft software's out there to put a pretty good book together. Yeah, it's not that difficult. Once they've got the content. Anymore. Yeah, exactly. Once it's written. And I'm not big on editors either. So you, you you edited the book yourself, or you've yeah I did. Well, you've done done a great job. It's um um about halfway through, and yeah, it's a page turner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what everybody says. <laughs> I had one guy read it through in one go in 14 hours. <laughs> yeah, and he hasn't read a book in years. <laughs> well, that's high praise indeed, right? Well, that, that, that's good. You're doing a little bit for um, liter literacy as well. That's right. That's right. Getting people back into reading, just like uh, 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 J.K. Rollins. <laughs> <laughs> She's getting the children to read. I'm getting the adults to read. <laughs> so what's been your aim with this book? Just to really tell my story and to enjoy writing it and to share my story with my friends. You know, I have a lot of um, I've traveled a lot, so I have a lot of friends in different places and nobody's really had the whole story, right? So I just wanted to uh, have it as a legacy, first of all, and then uh, also, uh, of course, want it to become a smash hit seller. He's going to play you in the movie. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the problem, right? I would have said George Clooney, but, you know, he might be getting a bit old now. He could play the older me. In your book, um, you paint quite a grim picture of growing up in Crawley, Sussex. Yes. And what, what's your main mem memory of it? Well, just how depressing it was. You know, everybody was broke. Everybody was depressed. Everybody complained about everything. It was horribly racist. It was horribly violent. Um, you know, everybody was very, very uh, 
very dour. It was just a miserable place to live. Everybody was broke. Nobody had a telephone. Nobody had a car. Nobody went on a vacation. It was just a poor kind of depressed area. It was an urban planning nightmare that was designed by this evil cabal of city planners who thought that it'd be a great idea to build this town around the factory estate and everybody would work in the factories and then everybody would live in these little, you know, suburbs all the way around it. And um, I guess it looked good on paper, but in practice, it just created this, uh, you know, alienation and, and depression and kids were, uh, you know, kids were shooting up heroin in the, in the soup, in the laundromat and in the pubs at the highest number of registered drug addicts in the British Isles in Crawley, Sussex. So there was something horribly wrong with it. It was, it was an urban planning experiment that went, that went wrong. In, in the book, you write about how Crawley treated that heroin problem as a public health issue and not a criminal issue with great results, which seems incredibly far-sighted. Yeah, I was amazed, actually, when I think back on that. It was very, very progressive, and it worked so well. And I just, I just don't understand why, you know, 50 years later, here we are and, and, and people are still will not treat it as a health issue. They won't give people prescription drugs. If you took all the opiate, opiate addicts, I mean, we have an epidemic in BC right now. We've had yeah. uh, a couple of thousand people die in the last like, year and a half. It's huge. I mean, they're dropping like flies. It's a huge yeah. problem. All you'd have to do is give those people a prescription medication for opiates yeah. most of them started on prescription medications anyways right yeah. and they do it did it for painkillers and whatnot and then they get addicted so all it would take is a prescription and you take all that street life out of it you take all the you know grubbing around trying to find a fix breaking into cars and houses to get money to buy a fix you just take all that away it just disappears overnight with a prescription so i just it, it's just amazing to me that uh, you know nobody's figured that out yet no, the war on drugs has been uh, quite a failure. I'll say. I mean, in Australia, we we have a continuing controversy about plain injecting rooms, despite yeah. the ev- despite evidence that they clearly work. <laughs> yeah, here too, we have uh, we have injection sites, or a couple, anyways. You know, they're one of weeks. There's not enough, but uh, it's a start. But there's all this harm reduction, you know, and it does reduce the harm to some degree. But I think a program where you give somebody a place to live and you give them the prescription, they just, uh, they start, they've got nothing to do with their lives anymore. They don't have to spend every waking moment of every day looking for a fix that you just take that away. Then they're just sitting around thinking about their lives and they come to some, you know, different ideas. Almost all the addicts I knew in Crawley were, uh, were kicked, uh, kicked because of that program. They almost all got off it. All of them that I knew, anyway. Well, hopefully uh, we'll see change post-COVID. Getting back to the core of the book, you, you write about your experiences on LSD. You wrote about your first frightening experience. Can you talk us through yeah. that? Well, it's kind of a common mistake, and I put that in the book. It's the only, in 50 years of using psychedelics, that's the only negative experience I've ever had. <clears throat> and it's the most common it's the most common uh, mistake that people make. So that's why I put it in there to start off because it's quite dramatic for one thing. It was a yeah. you know, a trip to hell and back. But um, it's there to kind of illustrate the most common problem that happens with psychedelics is somebody does uh, you know, a hit of acid and half an hour later, they don't feel anything. They do another one, you know, and then the walls are melting and then they yeah. get terrified and they get this horrible experience and they never touch it again. 
and I've heard that story hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. It's very, very common. But, you know, it doesn't take much to figure out the dosage and to do it in the right place or the right set and setting and, uh, and to get these things right. So that experience was, uh, you know, I was 15 years old and I'd never even heard of LSD and certainly didn't know what it did. <clears throat> we were experimenting with sort of downers and, and, and some amphetamines and stuff like this. And somebody said, you know, at the pub one night, do you want to, do you want to, want to, want to try a trip? And I said, sure. So we took this thing. It was a tiny, tiny, tiny little purple lump of, you know, plastic. And it was a, purple microdot, which are, you know, the now famous purple microdots. It was about three or 400 micrograms of LSD, which is a, you know, a really large dose. That's a so to do a, to do a big dose like that first time out without knowing even what it is or what it does is, is about the biggest mistake you can make. <laughs> so that's what happened to me. I went to Helen back. I thought it was a lizard. I thought it was dead. I thought it was a ghost. I thought I would never come back. And, um, of course I did, you know, 12 hours later, <laughs> it came down and was just glad to be alive. So I didn't touch anything for a couple of years after that. But uh, then, you know, after reading um, and educating myself, I realized that that wasn't really, that wasn't really the proper, proper use or responsible use. So I figured that out pretty quick. I mean, it doesn't take much to figure out these days because you've got so many resources. There's some great resources on the net. Erowid.org is a great site that I would recommend if anybody wants to know how to use psychedelics properly or any drug, because they cover every all the pharmaceuticals and all the recreational drugs and psychedelics. So Erowid.org, it's called the Vaults of Erowid. And uh, there's, it's a huge website. It's been going for about 25 years now. And there's a lot of really good information. So there's no excuse to make those mistakes anymore. You know, because information is, is everywhere now. Yeah, of course, as uh, Larry said, set and setting is uh, critical. Yeah, it's everything. And, um, you know, and, and like 50 years later, people still making set and setting mistakes. Set is, the, you know, the frame of mind and the setting is the environment you're in. So if you're in a great place with people you know and trust or you go for a walk in the woods with a few close friends and do a you know, moderate dose of LSD, you'll have the time of your life. You'll have a fantastically inspiring time. That would enrich your life and uh, if you make you know the mistake of doing too much like i knew people that did you know two hits of acid and went to horror movies <laughs> <laughs> that's not a good idea that's contraindicated no, no. say <laughs> no i i'd probably mirrored your first experience as well and but um also had an incredible experience as well but completely different set and setting and well a friend of mine in england that i knew at the time um, I sent him a copy of the book when it was done and he read that experience and I'd, I'd spoken to him two days after I had that experience. This is 50 years ago. <laughs> two days after that, I recounted it to him and he said it was exactly word for word, which was gratifying because, you know, my memory's not completely shot. <laughs> but also that was the reason he told me that he never touched LSD his entire life. He's now 65, the same age as I am. And he said that, uh, but after reading the rest of my book, he realized that there might be some benefit to him. So he's, uh, you know, he suffers from depression. Yeah. So now he's microdosing LSD for his depression. <laughs> but the reason he hasn't done it for 50 years is because of that experience of mine. Is, is the microdosing helping his depression? <clears throat> yes. Yes, it is. I know that there's an epidemic in microdosing right now with uh, yeah. 
psilocybin and LSD for um, various things. And people are finding it really, really helpful. You know, the SSRIs and the, uh, the um, mood inhibitors and the uh, antidepressants are not that effective. They, you know, they help some people, but they're not as effective as, as doctors would like to have you think. And also there's, um, you know, there's some nasty side effects with, uh, with the microdosing. There doesn't seem to be any side effects at all. And uh, often they work much better. So it's, it's, you know, it's cheap and easy to try. And uh, if it solves your problem, then that's a, that's a huge benefit. Talk moving on to MDMA and ecstasy. You write of rave culture, of course, yes. this is a subject in your first book, as being host to some of the most profound experiences you've had, literally people being saved by the Church of Rave. That's right. I was one of them. <laughs> yeah, can you tell me more about that? Well, it was just something I stumbled across, really. A friend of mine, a friend of mine's son, who I knew as a baby, actually, showed up at the door and said there's this new thing called rave and, you know, that was happening in England at the time. And um, he hooked into the scene here in uh, BC, Canada. And he said, yeah, you should try it. And I'd never never heard electronic dance music before and uh, never done MDMA before. So I was game to check it out. So we went down to a rave, which was at the Sal Salvation Army, an ex-Salvation Army, which was slated for demolition. So they'd gotten in there and they got several rooms going, three or four rooms with different music in the rooms. The main room was, uh, you know, stained glass windows and the DJs were up on the pulpit. So it was a pretty amazing location. All the walls were painted with fluorescent paint and whatnot. And um, yeah, I did this hit of E and went in and it kicked in and I got swept up by the music and it pretty much changed my life. Walked out in the morning and I just had a renewed, you know, vitality for life, a new a renewed empathy for other people and uh, renewed hope for the future. So it really, it really was a powerful, uh, powerful experience. It's like a really powerful meditation experience because I'd done quite a bit of meditation in the past too. And it was, it was similar to that, but much more, much more powerful, much more immediate. So um, yeah. And it, uh, it changed the course of my life. Then I started promoting raves and then I wrote my book on it. So it, became kind of consumed with the whole thing for a, for a few years. You, you wrote, sometimes you have to go to the limit to figure out where the limit is. Have you found yeah. your limits? Um, yeah, I think I do. I think I know my limits very well, actually. When I do, you know, when I do psychedelics now, I, I plan ahead. I decide exactly what I'm doing. I mean, I do the same with drinking. You know, if I'm going to go out and have a drink, I'll plan what I do, you know, I'll plan to, you know, and the timing as well. So, yeah, I think it's very easy to uh, take control of that stuff. I never, I never get out of control. I'm never, you know, past my limit with anything ever, and haven't, haven't really done, you know, haven't. I say a couple of experiences when I was a teenager, but apart from that, I've always, I've always kept sight of my limits. I've always wanted to know what I was going to do before I did it. I've always planned out my evenings and planned out my weekends and pretty much stuck to the plan. So uh, never had that problem. I know people have a problem with this and I don't completely understand that because if you make up your mind what you want, because if you do too much of something, it's not a better time. It's a worse time. So I want to have the best time I can. And if you plan your frequency of dosage of whatever you're imbibing in and you plan that out, you can have a fantastic time. And if you get it wrong, you can have a really terrible time. I mean, you don't want to be, you know, 
collapse, collapsing in public places or uh, out of commission or not knowing where you are or, you know, not being able to find your friends or, you know, freaking out or falling asleep or this, this is not a good time. So, you know, it's not, it's not difficult these days to figure out what the effects of recreational drugs are and what the frequency and dosage is. And you can experiment with yourself and you start low and you work your way up and you get to where you want to be. And so there's no reason for anybody not to be in control of what they're doing, really. So talking again about set and setting, what, what's your ideal setting for a psychedelic experience? Well, I think, you know, it's different at different times and different dosages. So, I mean, microdosing something like uh, uh, psilocybin, you can, you can you know, do pretty much anything on that. You don't need to really modify your set and setting too much because it's not going to affect you that much at a lower dose. But LSD, you know, it's very easy to do that in the wrong, wrong time and place. And uh, I recommend, uh, I always recommend doing uh, LSD or psilocybin out, outdoors. Go out in nature, <clears throat> you know, don't go to a party, don't go to a, you know, basement club. Go, go outside and be in a beach or the river or the forest or the mountains and with a few close friends and you really can't go wrong in that with that setting it can be very powerful and most people when they rate you know even if they even if they've only done it once if they rate it on a on a scale of your yeah, peak experiences in their life it's right up there with uh, you know first born and if you know if your graduation from university and you know the major events it's 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 considered by most people to be a, an important significant major event in their life even if they've only done it once or twice. Timothy Leary, of course, was um, turned on to therapeutic benefits of LSD. And we're finally seeing a resurgence in study of psychedelics to help with anxiety, PTSD and trauma, particularly MDMA and psilocybin. For an experienced psychonaut like yourself, this must be gratifying. It's a huge turnaround right now. I was amazed. I, uh, when I was researching my book, because I wanted to do a, a kind of a wrap-up of what was going on in psychedelic uh, research today, and there's so much going on that it would fill two books. But, so I had to kind of pare that down. But it is remarkable. I mean, I'm on a bunch of mailing lists from uh, people like MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And uh, so, yeah, that's the, and uh, there's 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 stuff going on all over the world in Israel, in Switzerland, in Europe, in England. Just heard of an LSD study in England. Um, so, it's because the you know the drug war and the, the the prohibition has prevented these drugs from being even looked at seriously. They've just been illegal. So even even uh, accredited scientists and serious researchers couldn't really do anything with them because they were illegal. So now they're getting exemptions. They're making exceptions because they can see that there's a a promise there and there's an application that may be of great benefit to many people. I mean, um, MDMA for PTSD is huge because we had all these soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan for the last 20 years. Now you have millions of people with PTSD and the regular therapies don't work that well. So they're finding that they can they can actually cure people completely with a couple of sessions, which is pretty remarkable. That's why the FDA fast-tracked it to the final stage, because it was given a special designation for being a you know a, a exceptionally promising uh, treatment. So yes, it's happening very quickly right now, and it's happening all over the world. 
it's a new day dawning. I read of one study um, of using virtual reality in MDMA for mm-hmm. PTSD. Yeah, you can relive the experience in a in an environment and you can detach from it, right? MDMA kind of suppresses your anxiety centers. You don't really feel that, you know, emo- your emotional triggers are dampened and you um, you can see see things objectively, which is what you need to do. PTSD is largely a memory problem. It's mm-hmm. the bad experiences in your is in your immediate memory and your volatile memory, and you just keep reliving it as if it's happening. Whereas normally a memory goes back into your long-term memory, and then you you look at it from a distance. You look at it from your you know present to the past, so it's in its place and doesn't affect you on an emotional level. But PTSD, the memory is stuck in the immediate memory and so you just relive that experience all the time it's a kind of a hellish experience a lot of those guys commit suicide because they just can't they can't stand it so you know they can get a prescription mbma of course it works with therapy you don't just take the pill and that's it it doesn't work that way it just makes you very receptive and um to uh to the therapy and then they can reset the memory and you're good to go getting back to the the book, the title of the book, of course, is Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer. You write about offering a money-back guarantee on the psychedelics you sold. I expect that made you a very popular choice. Well, it takes the um, yeah, it takes the chance out of it, right? Because people are people are worried about what they're getting, and rightfully so, you know. And that was one of the reasons why I first started dealing psychedelics was to get a safe, a safe and reliable, high quality. Uh, psychedelics for my friends that was the impetus and once i'd hooked into a few really impeccable sources then um that's that's what i would be selling and my contact was always offer me a money-back guarantee so i passed that along and people felt really confident that they couldn't you know really go wrong so made it very safe and uh confessions of an ethical drug dealers part confession part travel guide part philosophical treatise and throughout it all you'll runs your love of music how important is music to you oh it's absolutely essential like i play music i play music every day i play the ukulele i play the guitar and i play the piano and um every day i play some you know some more than others but every day and it kind of gives me a, for me it's like a meditation i don't perform anymore but i still write songs and write music and it's just such a meditative state. It puts me in a, you know, everything else goes away. Every, all the other thoughts of the world, all the other, you know, concerns of the day, they just melt away. And you're just in the moment, in the song, in the rhythm, in the sound. And to me, it's like a meditation kind of, uh, I, think, I think I'd probably go nuts without it. <laughs> in this series of the podcast, we're also talking to songwriters and you're a prolific songwriter yourself what's your approach to songwriting well i think the first thing you you got to have something to say for me i have to have something to say so i can't just you know write a song about nothing so all my songs that you know have have something to say about something and it's and it comes from that i guess that's the impetus and then uh, there's no real sometimes i'll come up with the melody first and then i'll work out a chord structure for the melody and then write the lyrics. Sometimes I'll find lyrics and write lyrics and then try and find a melody for that. So there's no one, there's no one method. It's always a little bit of a, it's always a bit of a mystery. 
I mean, they asked Leonard Cohen, you know, like where, where that, you know, where does, where do the good songs come from? And he says, I had no idea. He said, if I knew where they come from, I'd go there more often. Yeah, it's kind of a mysterious process. It's the same with writing. You know, when I finished this book, I thought, well, I finished it and printed it. And I thought, holy shit, I just wrote a book. <laughs> where, the, where did that come from? Like, <laughs> it's always a bit surprising, actually. You know, when I've made films and when you get to the end and you look at it and you go, wow, yeah. I actually did that. That. and it's sort of you I guess you get involved in the process it's about the process for me rather than the finished product and the finished product is actually always a bit of a surprise how long were you working on this book it took about eight months to a first draft and then about another couple of months editing and then about a month to uh to you know design the book and print it and get printed copies so about a year you know all, all together that's a pretty good turnaround it's not bad actually it's pretty quick i mean most people i think take quite a bit longer but it was it was fairly easy to write because i was writing about stuff that that i'd experienced and that i knew about and yeah i didn't have to make anything up i didn't have to try to you know get ideas because there was more ideas than i could use the biggest problem with this book was what to leave out because there was you know <laughs> this whole countries and years of time that are not there yeah, yeah. but you know everything couldn't go in so i tried to hit the high points and uh, you know make it interesting but yeah there was a lot that lot that had to be left out so i'm writing a new book now so that's a novel that will be a little bit more inventive so it'll probably be a slightly longer process i would think you've written screenplays is this your first novel yeah this with this one i'm writing now will be my first novel tell us a bit about your writing process how's it work for you yeah i had a real I find I need a schedule. So what I did with this one, I'd get up, um, I'd start around uh, 10 or 11 in the morning. I'd get up, have breakfast, get stuff ready, do, you know, little things that I needed to get out the way, get the little, get, do the emails and whatnot, get things out the way. And then start around 10 or 11 and then work till about four or five. And that was my schedule for, you know, five days a week, four or five days a week for eight months. And that's why I kind of, I mean, it takes a concerted effort. You know, you can't expect yeah. to kind of write for an hour here and there and a couple of e evenings a week or something and, and really get anything substantial done. Yeah. So I think you do need a kind of a schedule and then you just stick to it and you just keep typing. <laughs> well, um, I'm glad you typed to the end of this book and shared it with us. But it's a fantastic read, and I highly recommend it to our listeners. All right. What's next for Jimmy Fitz? Well, I guess I'm working on a new novel. It's called The End of Everything. Ah. It's about a, it's about a patient in a mental asylum who's plotting his own suicide. It's going to be hilarious. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Jim. We'll... Okay, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Jimmy Fritz. You can get in contact with Jimmy on his website, jimmyfritz.ca, and of course, buy his book. It's a great read, very funny, and you'll learn a lot about the world of psychedelics. Highly recommended. That's it for this week. I hope you're enjoying season four of The Writer Show. Remember, you can get the full show notes on our website, thewritershow.com. 
why not join our mailing list so you'll never miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show, feel free to share our links with your friends. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week.